She saw him leave that morning, but he didn't come back that afternoon. He didn't show up that night. Nobody heard from him. The teen's body was found in a rolled up gym mat in a high school in 2013. His death ruled accidental. Say my name and remember what you've done. Your hurricane has blackened out the sun. You can't continue to kill unarmed black people and get away with it. But if Kendrick did die of an accident, how, with all that distrust, how could you even ever show that? But then on the flip side is they didn't treat it like it, it could have been a homicide. Lowndes County Sheriff Ashley Polk announced officials were reopening the investigation. Only angle is to find justice for my son. You can just tell death had come through our family and it just settled. You are currently listening to the podcast version of Ashes to Ash TV. This is season three of the investigation of Kendrick Johnson, episode 24, the rest of the story. This is the crazy thing though about doing experiments is we decided to add in this experiment at the end, which really shocked me to my core. I was so happy that this experiment was suggested at the last minute and I was so happy we did it because it cleared up even more questions I had about if Kendrick Johnson was murdered or this was an accident. And it's getting me more and more comfortable coming to a conclusion on this case. Okay, you guys ready? Marks, get set, go. I started the stopwatch as my two actors started the next experiment. We see them first undoing the Velcro band around the mat. They look as though they're working in conjunction to try to get to the end of this new experiment. I'm sure you're probably wondering what this experiment will tell us and what exactly we're testing here. So I think we really need to go back to the last episode for a moment before I fully explain this experiment and what we're trying to gauge here. So basically in less than six minutes, the killer or killers would have to be capable of the following. One, grabbing the mat and pulling it away from the dozen or so other mats so that it can be unrolled fully. Two, removing the big thick Velcro band from around the mat. Three, unrolling the mat fully. Four, murdering Kendrick Johnson. Five, after murdering KJ, you have to then move his body onto the unrolled mat. Six, rolling a motionless deadweight teenager into a mat this size. Seven, making the roll so tight that the hole in the center of it is only 14 and three quarters inches with somebody who has a shoulder width of 16 inches or more. Eight, adding the big Velcro band back around the mat, at least half of it so it lays flat. Nine, move half a dozen mats out of the way so you can take the mat that KJ is in and push it all the way against the back wall. 10, making sure that all the mats are stacked back in front of the mat KJ is in so nothing looks out of place. 11, exit the gym without a single camera capturing your movement. And do this all in less than six minutes until the next class is scheduled to begin. Now we return to a clip from the experiments where we see the two boys finish pulling the Velcro off the mat, partially unrolling it and then rolling it back up. The footage is sped up five times just for ease of watching. The boys then stand up the mat and they even it out as they try to put the Velcro back around it. 
I stop and take a look at the time and it currently reads 1.47. So now they are basically running the six inch Velcro band around the mat to secure it. We watch as the two work together to try to get this done in a timely manner. All right, so you guys are done. We're just gonna look at the time real quick. We got three, a little bit over three minutes, three and a half minutes about. So why is this so important? Well, I think if you take a look at that last episode, we discovered that there was really only about three to six minutes where a crime could have been committed if you choose to believe that KJ was murdered. According to CNN, the cameras last see Kendrick Johnson at 1.09 p.m. and then they come back on at 1.15 p.m. So that's a six minute window. And then also in the Valdosta Daily Online, Brandon Powers seems to uncover that KJ is seen in the gym and then he's able to show us that three minutes later, there are other students in the gym. So with his timeline, there's only a three minute window. So I think we're really looking at about three to six minutes here. So power showing the same clips that CNN showing, but he kind of dives in a little bit deeper. And one thing we noticed right off the bat is KJ actually enters the gym with another student. Then within three minutes, more students enter the gym. So this really only leaves three minutes for you to kill Kendrick Johnson and hide his body. And you have to do this all without the other student who entered the gym at the same time noticing. Now let's take a look at the results of the experiment. It took approximately three and a half minutes to do the following things you need to do in the time frame that was allotted if a crime took place here. In that time, we only accomplished removing the Velcro band, unrolling the mat, and we only did that partially rolling the mat back up, and that is with no one in the mat, I can imagine this adds a level of complication. If it took us that long to only do four out of the 11 items, do you really think this is all possible in less than six minutes? Keep in mind, we have large tasks that still need to be completed, like extracting the mat from the other mats so you can lay it out fully. We have to kill Kendrick Johnson. And then the final step, moving a half a dozen or so mats out of the way so the one KJ is in can be tucked behind them and next to the wall. And you also have to accomplish this with other students in the gym. According to CNN and the Valdosta Daily Online, there are really only three minutes where there are not other students in the gym. So in the other three minutes, you have to make it look like nothing strange is happening by those mats or not make it obvious that you just murdered someone. That's a tall order in just six minutes. So do you think a teenager could pull this off in that time frame? Was that difficult? It was like complicated. You just, it's like everything's like sticking together. I think that's like the hardest part. It's just, it's like, and you got to keep it off yourself too. It's like, it's all moving parts and it's moving so quickly and you're working with someone else. So you need to communicate a little well. You got to think about how like it, it gets detangled, like it adds the time to it. Like if it didn't get detangled, like we, we probably would have took less time to do it. But like he said, it was really sticky. So it was harder than it needs to be actually. The Velcro seems to like attach to everything. Did you find that over made it more complicated because of how the Velcro was interacting with the carpet on the top? Yeah, definitely. I think that's, that's definitely the hardest factor. Can you guys tilt it down a little to show us how big that hole is? Okay, so it's like much more loosely folded than it had been before. Yeah. Is that what you guys are seeing? Yeah, definitely. All right, you can lift it back up. When we were rolling it up, like it was like cricking it, like you notice like I had to push it down to make it more of like a, how it was before. Perfect, is there anything else you wanna to add to talk about your experience? It's hard. Yeah.
Okay. I think Job had a really interesting point here, and you can even do this at home just rolling a piece of paper up. Oftentimes, one of the sides kind of sticks out a little bit. It sort of telescopes out, so you keep having to push it in so that it rolls so the two ends stay nice and tight and straight. And the two boys seem to really be having a hard time making sure the mat stayed even as they rolled it up. I also had noticed throughout this process that the mat that KJ was found in is wrapped really tightly. And I wondered how feasible that would be if you were in a hurry because you just murdered someone and you were trying to hide their body in the mat. If you were trying to roll up that mat quickly, how feasible would it be that the mat would be wound that tightly? Wouldn't it be kind of wound looser or in a messy, hurried way? This mat is wound really tightly and the Velcro band is put back on it. That takes a little bit of effort and time. I also was wondering the hole is only 14 and three-fourths inches, and KJ's shoulders width is 16 inches. So I was really wondering if you had just murdered someone and you put them in the mat who had 16-inch shoulders and then you rolled it up, also, could you make the hole 14 and three quarters inches? Obviously, that wouldn't be your priority, but would it be complicated if you were in a hurry to roll the mat that tightly? That also seems like something that we have to really figure out here. All right, so this next thing is we're going to have you guys try to roll Kate up in it because the hole you guys crawled through was 14 inches. So we want to see if we can make that happen if you guys are trying to roll her up. So we want to see if you could make it that small with somebody in it. She's just going to act like dead weight legitimately. So Kate is one of my newest crew members on this series. You guys might have seen her in previous episodes. We wanted to use her for this next experiment because she has a really tiny frame, actually a much smaller frame than KJ. Why I think that's beneficial is if we can roll the mat up that tightly with Kate in it, then we know that it might be possible for KJ to be rolled that tightly. If we cannot roll the mat that tightly with Kate in it, and she has a smaller frame than KJ, I think that's gonna tell us a lot about if it was someone with 16 inch shoulders and how possible it would be to be able to get that whole 14 and three quarters inches if you were in a hurry. In this clip, we return to the experiment footage where we see Kate lay down on the ground. Job and Jack pick her up by her shoulders and ankles and they carry her onto the mat. Kate is playing dead, so she's just laying there limply. Now the two boys begin to roll the mat around her. Here is where you see the guys struggling to keep the mat even. They each need to keep pushing on their side to get it straight. Probably straighten out a little bit. Probably just move it this way. Move it this way a little bit, just straighten it out. If they want to try to get a tight roll on the mat, it is something that takes time. It does not appear that it can be done quickly. Either the mat is put away quickly with a loose roll, or it is methodically held together to get the tightest roll possible. Okay, so 17. Okay, so 15, so we have 17 by 15. We tried this experiment a handful of times and we were never able to get the mat rolled that tightly. And I think because Kate's frame is so much smaller than KJ's, that is really telling. At some point, I even instructed the two actors to take their time because I wanted to see if this was even possible to get the hole rolled that tightly. And I'm not saying with time that you couldn't figure out how to get the mat rolled that tightly. I just have a hard time believing that two people who just murdered a boy and now are trying to cover it up would take the time to really make that mat neatly rolled. 
My hypothesis is, is that if KJ was actually murdered and they only had a six minute window to murder him in and hide his body, the mat would not be wound that tightly with the Velcro band around it. I think it would be loose and chaotically rolled. And that is not what we see on the crime scene the day KJ is found. We're gonna need you guys to try again, see if we can get it smaller. All right. Okay, you go for another try? Yeah. I think if, since you like it was right here, like make it a little tight. Where am I going? I think one thing that's really interesting about this clip is the two boys actually move Kate down a couple feet so that she's right on the lip of the mat when they start rolling it. But again, they wouldn't have had this luxury if the person had been just at weight. Now we see the footage sped up as they try to roll her very tightly within that hole. <laughs> Think you were rolling someone up? Do you think you try to get that tight or do you think it'd be more about speed? More about speed because like, it was pretty hard to do. Trying to get it as accurate as possible will probably take more time than necessary if you were trying to put a body in there and escape. At this point, I asked the two boys to slow down a bit because I really wanted to see if it was possible to get the mat that tight. Obviously, if someone had just murdered another person, I'm pretty sure the neatness and tightness of that mat would have been the least of their worries. But it's only fair that we at least test the probability of it even being possible. So after asking the boys to slow down, they a little more methodically moved Kate back onto the mat and tried to roll her up with a little more thoughtfulness and communicating back and forth. So then you, got, you guys got a little better. Let's see what we got. We thought if we switched sides, um, it would be like, if it would make a difference. Okay, so we got 17 inches and 14 and three quarters inches, so close. So at least we know you can make it pretty close. We watch as the two boys unroll the mat that Kate is still in. After they're finished unrolling, Kate hops up. Pretty good. <laughs> My overall conclusion is that it's really difficult to get the mat rolled that tightly, and that's with somebody with a much smaller frame than KJ. We probably did this experiment six or seven times, and the only time we even got close was the last time when we slowed down and really tried to do it methodically. So now you have to be able to do what we just did this last time, except much faster and also with someone with a bigger frame and under the gun as far as time. I just think there are too many virtually impossible barriers to overcome here for me to actually believe that one to three students were capable of doing this in three to six minutes without anybody noticing. When we first started going through the crime scene footage, I noticed something that had happened earlier in this case, and I thought it was kind of interesting. So let's go back for a moment and think about the fight on the bus between Brandon Bell and Kendrick Johnson. At the end of that fight, Kendrick Johnson goes home with the resource officer named Shirley, while Brandon Bell goes home with his mother, Karen. If you remember from the film Finding Kendrick Johnson, they put up a drawn image of KJ as they talk about him arriving back to the school. In that image, they show him getting out of the back of a cop car. His hands look like they're behind his back, so it almost looks like he's been arrested somewhat. And the feel of the image is chaotic. It doesn't have a soft feeling to it whatsoever. I think that really gives the wrong impression of what happened. It sounds like from Kenyatta, KJ came back and he kind of brushed the whole incident off. He got to ride in the front of the car. He was playing with the radio. And, and was he upset that he had to ride in the police car or he didn't even take that? I don't as think he even cared. It was my mother who was more upset than anything. 
What we discovered here is surely the officer who brings KJ back to the school after the fight is also a person of color. Again, I'm only pointing this out because a lot of people believe that racism has run amok in this case. And this is one of those times that that is just not true. Now, for a moment, going back to the crime scene video, we see this imagery. This is criminalist James Thornton of the Valdosta Lounge Regional Crime Lab here on January 11, 2013 at Lowndes County High School, 1606 Norman Drive, Valdosta, Georgia. One thing I noticed immediately is James Thornton handling the crime scene photos and videos, so he's one of the first people on the scene. I thought from the gentleman's voice alone is that you could tell he was probably a person of color already, but when this clip surfaced, I could actually see his reflection in the gym door, and so now I knew he was also black. In this footage from the crime scene, we see a shaky camera walk up towards a glass door as we see James Thornton's reflection in the glass as he goes to enter. So one of the reasons I'm pointing out the people of color involved in this case is this case throughout the media and social media is often made out to appear that it's a bunch of evil white males who are perpetrating a cover-up, when that is unequivocally absolutely untrue. This narrative becomes so easy to believe because we have seen so many cases where white authority is not handling someone of a different race appropriately. And this has happened time and time again, so it's really easy to lump this case in with another one of those cases. But it just is not. No matter how many people come along here and try to cram this into the conspiracy box, it is just not a conspiracy. The amount of people that would have had to have been involved in this cover-up would now be eclipsing 20 plus people, and now we're finding out that some of them would have to be black, or married to black individuals, or have biracial children. Obviously we know anyone can be racist regardless of the color of their skin, but I'd really like to know why a black individual would help cover up this murder. Why have James Thornton and Shirley not come forward and scream from the rooftops conspiracy? Instead, they're both still doing their jobs diligently. After the long and arduous investigation that proves unequivocally that the Bells had nothing to do with the murder of Kendrick Johnson, if Kendrick Johnson was murdered at all. The fact of the matter is, if we actually are willing to look at the evidence honestly, there's just not enough time to commit a murder and cover it up. And that doesn't even include all the other evidence. That's just talking about the timeline. One thing that really shocked me as we began to come to the end of our investigation after almost two years of intensely investigating this case is how many inconsistencies that are really easy to figure out in the film Finding Kendrick Johnson. But that's if you were actually willing to do an investigation and look at it unbiasedly. But unfortunately, the director of Finding Kendrick Johnson, Jason Pollock, chose not to do the effort that is needed to actually call yourself an investigative journalist and documentarian. Although I never want to see another filmmaker in trouble, I do believe that Jason Pollock needs to atone for the lies he's told about the Bell family and how it's made them look in the media. He's basically accused two innocent children of murder to help push forward the narrative that the Bells were involved in the death of Kendrick Johnson. Based his entire film off what the Johnsons believe happened to Kendrick Johnson, which makes sense since the Johnsons own 50% of the film Finding Kendrick Johnson, Jason never gave the Bells an opportunity to tell their side of the story and failed to even showcase what their side might have been. He used unfactual information that can easily be disproved. 
And furthermore, he edited the content of the film in such a way that when juxtaposed with certain imagery and sound, it makes it much more menacing than what was really actually happening. So it gives the wrong impression of what was actually occurring. Because I had been so upset about this documentary, Finding Kendrick Johnson, and all the lies and rumors that it is helping spread, I was really happy to see when the Bell family finally came out of the shadows and started fighting this insanity. I spent my Thanksgiving vacation going over this lawsuit against Jason Pollock and boom, content. So after reading through the lawsuit, I had highlighted a couple things that I thought was really interesting. That way, if you're not really into reading a 105-page lawsuit, I'll highlight what I think is important. In this lawsuit, item number 52 states, Brandon was on a school bus traveling to a wrestling match in Macon, Georgia. The bus departed at 12.30 p.m. on January 10th, 2013 approximately one hour before decedent was last seen alive at 1.27 p.m. and arrived in Macon, Georgia just before 4 p.m. The departure and arrival times on the bus have been confirmed by a sworn testimony of individuals who traveled with Brandon on the bus, by cell phone tower data, by the motel check-in time, and by data from the wrestler weigh-in at the match at which Brandon participated. Right there, just that statement alone, Jason in his film could have at least showed those pieces of evidence. Even if he wanted to say that they weren't true, he should have at least shown them. Point 69. The Bells have also been targets of hatred, threats, and false accusations. We forget that there are two boys, and that's Brandon and Brian Bells, whose lives have been damaged beyond repair, and that damage is still happening to this day. Think about that. That film, Finding Kendrick Johnson, came out last year. The next two items kind of run together, so I'll read them simultaneously. It's number 90 and 91. In publishing the documentary, Jason Pollock failed to include known facts that would exculpate the Bells and omit pertinent information to persuade the audience of the documentary film of the false impression that Brian and Brandon murdered the decedent and that Rick helped cover it up. Jason Pollock intentionally omitted virtually all of the material facts that resulted in the clearing of the Bells, which include, but are not limited to, the following. The video surveillance confirmed that Brian did not enter the Lowndes County High School gym on the day of the decedent's death. That Brandon was on the way to a wrestling match in Macon, Georgia. That the timing of the decedent's death clearly demonstrates that Brian and Brandon were not anywhere near the decedent's location when he died or was killed, all based upon actual surveillance footage. And that the FBI reported in 2014 that it was certain no cover-up or conspiracy occurred. So this next point is probably my favorite and is what is actually going to be the reason that Jason gets in so much trouble. And that is number 97. Jason Pollock further made the defamatory impact of his publication worse by representing that the documentary film was based upon years of research. As I've done two years of research on this case, Jason had actually started the case years before even I started. So he had two additional years on me to investigate this case. And his very poor version of investigative journalism, I think shows throughout this film. It takes a long time to go through this stuff, but it's really obvious when you start getting to the conclusions. And apparently in his four years of investigating, he was unable to come to the conclusions that for instance, we were able to come to in two years. So I really wonder what the hell he means by, years of research. What does that mean? Like once a week for an hour, he researched this case because that's really all the work he could have done to have missed some of the things he missed. So one thing that really caught me off guard in this lawsuit, which I thought was really interesting. The statements of the grieving friends and family of the decedent who have been discredited. 
one of whom has even been charged with fabricating false evidence to frame Brian. I wonder what family or friend that they've been speaking to who was actually charged with fabricating false evidence to frame Brian. Are we talking about Lupe Williams, Ryan Anthony Domek Hernandez, because they're talking about friends? Or is it someone who's actually in the film finding Kendrick Johnson, which I have to believe. And if that's the case, we might be talking about someone really close to Kendrick Johnson, someone in his immediate family. I'm just not really sure who they're talking about here. And I'd like to know who also was charged with fabricating false evidence to frame Brian. Jason Pollock proceeded to strike while the iron was hot with publication of this at best reckless documentary film without observing any professional reporting standards for fully investigating all sides of a story without any mechanisms in place to mitigate against such defamatory publication, all to profit financially from public controversy and cultural salience of contemporary racial injustice. In doing so, Jason Pollock ignored legitimate controversies that otherwise could have been explored and vilified completely innocent people in the tragic death of the decedent. Jason Pollock not only exploited the media landscape for his cash grab, but he also exploited the decedent's family by adding fuel to the fire of a long-standing but likely incorrect belief that their son was murdered, and worse, that their son was murdered by Brian and Brandon, who simply could not have murdered the decedent. 108. The Bells have suffered damage to their reputations, embarrassment, humiliation, endangerment of their physical safety, and psychological and emotional trauma. They have also been targets of hatred, threats, and false accusations that have overwhelmed the Bells since this widespread publication of the documentary film. Brian and Brandon have had extreme difficulties obtaining employment because the film has rendered them unhirable to prospective employers who do not have the time to investigate the false claims of the documentary film and who can't otherwise afford to be implicated in the possibility that they could be employing murderers involved in a racially motivated murder of a child. For example, Brian was turned away from employment at three county sheriff's office despite possessing qualifications that exceed the job requirements. Similarly, Rick's professional legacy has been destroyed by the notion that he was involved in covering up a murder and obstructing justice, when in reality his career was dedicated to anti-terrorism to protect the citizens of the United States from acts of foreign and domestic terror. So when people want to attack me and say I should no longer be doing this case or I should leave Kendrick Johnson's name out of it, I can tell you one thing. I came into this case to fight for Kendrick Johnson and to find out what happened to him. Throughout the process of our investigation, I honored that. But I also found two boys who have been accused wrongly. And now I fight for them. Say my name. Created by... Ash Patino, Investigator, Debbie. Associate Producer, Kate Giordano. Title Music, Bones by Eight Graves. The website, Ashes to Ash TV, was designed by Second Melody. Secondmelody.com. Experiment Subjects, Jack and Job. Talent Agency, Ellen's Kids. Safety Company, Safety First. Safety Officer, Shana. Please subscribe on the website, ashestoashtv.com, A-S-H-E-S-T-O-A-S-H-T-V.com. With a subscription, you'll receive commercial-free content, early access to episodes, uncut interviews, and discounted merchandise. 
follow us on YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at ashes to ash TV. And on Facebook at ashes to ash True Crime. If you have any tips or information, please contact me at ashland57 at gmail.com. A-S-H-L-A-N-D-5-7 at gmail.com. We can keep you anonymous. If you know of any illegal activity regarding this case, please contact your local law enforcement. Maybe you could be my home.